This is Terry Crosby. Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Welcome back, listeners. It's great to have you with us for another week. Andy's here with me. It's good to be back. Looking forward to the show today. One of the first things I want to say is that uh, we want to say a big happy birthday to our colleague and friend, Steve Kim. Mr. Steve Kim. 40 years old today. Happy birthday, you old man. I mean, you listening will get this probably tomorrow, but <laughs> anybody that uh, you know knows him, give him a big shout out for happy birthday. Yeah, 40 on. years old, though. Go but on you to- know something about that, right, Andy? Thanks, Terry. Yeah, I do. You know a little something about 40. In fact, man, I got a I got a birthday quickly creeping up here and I'm not happy about it. Once you get into 40 and you creep into 41 and no, it's not pleasant, Terry. But you know, you know even more about that than I do. Whoa, hey, easy. <laughs> yeah, I guess I do. Well, it's great to have you with us. We have a guest today, and uh, he's on the line from, I think, sunny California, so uh, we'll be talking to him shortly. We have with us Sean McDowell. Sean is uh, an associate professor of Christian Apologetics program at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. He graduated Talbot Theological Seminary with a double master's in theology and philosophy. He has an earned PhD in apologetics and worldview studies at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in 2014. Sean speaks in the United States and abroad. He's the author, co-author, and editor of over 20 books. He's married to Stephanie, and they have three children, and uh, they live in California. And Sean also has a podcast called Thinking Biblically you might want to check out as well. Great to have you on the podcast, Sean. Thanks for having me, guys. Good to be here. Good to have you on the show, man. It was great, by the way, seeing you out at... ETS, EPS, Evangelical Philosophical Society, Evangelical Theological Society, for those of you who haven't heard of that. One thing I appreciate about you, man, is you come out to that regularly. Have you been going for a number of years? You know, I've been going probably 15 years, but I'll tell you recently with the age of my kids, it's harder and harder to go um, and carve out that time and be gone, especially the season when it is. Mm-hmm. So... That's reality, but I absolutely love being there on so many levels. It's fun, learn a ton, see scholarship, connect with people. It's an awesome conference, but being a dad, something just has to give sometimes. Oh, I know. I hear you. One of the things I'm learning more and more is in those opportunities where it works, learning to take my kids along with me. Yeah. But with with that conference in in particular, that could be a little challenging because, uh, it's definitely going steady. Yeah, it's pretty heavy stuff. But no, it's great seeing you out there. Also, you uh, participated in the apologetics conference out in. Um, oh, I forget the name of the. You place were there. Too. I was there. <laughs> <laughs> you opened up that conference as well. Yeah, Craig Hazen, my boss at Biola, puts that on. So every time I can speak and be there is pretty special. Also, I spoke right before William Lane Craig, which is cool. One of my heroes and colleagues. So I got to sit and listen to him as well was, was pretty neat. Let's talk about that quickly here. You work at Biola. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and particularly your transition because you were a high school teacher, if I understand correctly. Yeah. So I taught high school Bible full time for a decade and about halfway through that just realized 
I wanted to do a PhD, also wanted to teach college and graduate school. So Craig Hazen called me and said, hey, we've got a position in the apologetics program, which is now part of Talbot. Would you come over? And I was just thrilled. So I actually still teach a Bible class three mornings a week to high school, partly because my passion is next generation. Uh, that's where my kids go to school. And it's just fun for me. So full-time Biola, but also teach still part-time with high school students three mornings a week in the same world of apologetics, culture, theology, etc. That's incredible. So you're, you're still at it, still engaged with both high school and, and college students, which I think is applicable here in the conversation that we want to have uh, and I think really speaks to uh, your experience. With regards to this new book you wrote, So the Next Generation Will Know, you wrote this with a friend of ours, Jay Warner Wallace. Uh, we want to get into this book today and talk a little bit about it and really encourage our listeners to pick this up. What a great resource for helping to engage this culture, not just from a ministry perspective, but one thing I really appreciate is particularly from a parental uh, perspective. If, if you're a parent or wanting to be a parent or you're somebody that's serving in the church, this is a great resource for you. I think one of the first questions might be, so the title of the book is, So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. So what is this next generation? Can you define for us what you were talking about in this book? Yeah, so we base the book on a lot of research of what's typically called Gen Z. Some call it iGen, the post-millennials, some have referred to as the selfie generation, But Gen Z are basically those right now who are in elementary or upper elementary through college. And two of my kids are Gen Zers, so I was kind of interested just in my own parenting. Like, what are kids thinking today? How do they see the world? What's unique about their perspectives and how they understand truth and process information? And frankly, I just didn't see a real book that was kind of timely, so to speak, that took biblical principles. The title, So the Next Generation Will Know, comes from Psalm 78, but also tailored those timeless truths to uniquely speak to a way that Gen Z thinks and processes information today. So that was really the goal. So Gen Z, I mean, we could get into some of the details if you want to, but probably the defining obvious characteristic is that this generation is really the first digital native generation. I mean, we have young people who have been raised swiping smartphones and tablets before they could read, before they could speak. And I'm not even sure we really understand yet as a culture or a church what this does to relationships, what this does to how they build a worldview, and frankly, what it does to communities. So this book is an attempt to be a research-based tool to help anyone who cares about the next generation, parents, teachers, mentors, coaches, uh, pastors, with some very practical ways of passing on faith to the next generation. Uh, on that note, I want to get into this a little bit deeper with regards to the subtitle being A Challenging World. What some of these challenges are that this generation is facing, one of the themes that really came across to me as I'm reading this book is how relational-focused it is. And that, I think, is quite intentional, especially trying to reach or seeking to reach the challenges of this generation. And one of those challenges being the growing mental health crisis of loneliness. And, and this really spoke to me because I'm reading this book. And at the same time, I was speaking out at a local college 
And the administrators there were telling me that over the years, and particularly this year at this particular institution, the amount of health crisis, you know, mental health crisis that they're dealing with in issues surrounding loneliness and broken relationships in general is something to a degree that they have never seen before. And so I think that this is clearly one of the challenges that we're facing right now. I think that's absolutely right. Different places that I go and experts I talk to, whether it's camp directors, principals of schools, uh, homeschool parents, all these different worlds, I consistently hear the same message that there's a radical increase in loneliness and anxiety and depression. And the research backs this up. So anybody who wants to engage this generation has to keep in mind that this is really a broken, hurting generation as a whole. And especially for us who are apologists, this brokenness deeply shapes how people understand God, how they understand the world, the worldview that they develop. So really the goal of the book was to try to take these timeless truths about scripture, but relationally incarnate them in a way that this generation will understand. And that's ultimately the Christian message that God took on human flesh and enters into the world relationally. So how do we reach a generation that has so many faulty ideas from our secular culture, but also is just lonely? And they don't know how to form healthy relationships. And their worldview has just been built by so many bad ideas. How do we deconstruct this and practically help them emotionally and also intellectually? That was kind of the big challenge of the book for us. So earlier on in the book, there's a whole page that you have a bunch of quotes from people that actually have walked away from the faith, young people. Why do you think Gen Z is the least religious generation? And uh, what are the factors that play into their lack of faith? What, what do you see going on there? I think there's a couple things going on. I think there's a relational component. And studies actually show that as marriages, for example, break down, people develop more of a secular worldview. So divorce, for example, has been shown to rock a young person's uh, faith, especially those within the church. So given that there's been a lot of brokenness in the church and, and wider culture, uh, that kind of encourages a, a secular mindset within this generation. So there is a relational reason at the heart of why some kids are disengaging the church. But I also think there's a worldview issue. At its heart, why do young people disengage the church? I think we don't give them the tools to navigate culture as a whole from a Christian perspective. And that involves answering tough questions about God existing, but also involves tough questions like related to the LGBTQ conversation. How do kids navigate these difficult questions? And as a whole in the church, we kind of give spiritual answers, but we haven't comprehensively trained a generation to think Christianly about everything. So they're Christian in the way they speak, maybe Christian in some of their activities at church, but that worldview is not filtering down into the way they really understand and see the world. So in light of that, many will just walk away and disengage the church. So bottom line is there's a worldview component and there's a relational component. We have to do both when we approach this generation. This is a clear theme that comes out in your book with regards to uh, one of the things you guys talk about is that truth is not enough. And the idea here is that you need both truth and relationship. And one of the things I thought was interesting 
there was a key idea there with regards to relationship. And I want to get into this truth component more deeply, but I think this is an important aspect just with regards to truth. A parent's relationship to their child, just how significant that is in helping form and keep their beliefs, and particularly a father's relationship with his children. Yes, I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say this. As we cite in the book, the largest study that I'm aware of was by a professor named Vern Bankston at University of Southern California. He wrote a book in 2013 on faith and families, and they're asking the question, what sociological factors must be present for a faith to be passed from one generation to the next? And they interviewed 3,500 people over 35 years, four different generations. So there's a massive data here over time. And their conclusion was basically the single most important factor in faith transmission is a, quote, warm relationship with the Father. A warm relationship with the Father. That is powerful. And that's a wake-up call for the church. The point is not that the mother is not important. The reality is that statistically speaking, moms are much more likely to be present and the father is just simply more likely a wild card. But I also think there's something about the nature of the father, the way we relate to him, that deeply shapes the way we understand God. And there's a lot of studies that back this up. But we import from our earthly relationships as a whole, and really in many ways with our earthly father, how we understand God. So if that relationship with the father is broken or lacking, then oftentimes people will disengage their relationship with their heavenly father. Now, isn't this interesting, Sean, that most people, uh, and you guys talk about this in the book, and I've been reading this as well in the research that I've done, is that most people, although they may leave the church, they're not necessarily leaving their belief in God that still a high amount of people believe in God. Yeah, this is a really important distinction. And we tried to make it clear in the book where we weren't just alarmist. You've heard people say 85% of Christians are abandoning their faith in this generation. That's just false. Now, somewhere between a third and two thirds of students disengage the church, kind of in the teenage into college years. The question still remains how many of them will come back as they get older, because typically people come back to church when they have kids and they want their kids to have morals, so they come back to church. But Gen Zers, if the trends continue, are less likely to get married, and if they get married later, and are less likely to have kids, and if they have kids, have less kids. So we're still seeing play out how many come back to the church, but we need not confuse, like you said, that those who are considered nuns, N-O-N-E-S, necessarily don't believe in God. In fact, most nuns are not atheists. Most are not agnostic. Some still believe in God, some pray, uh, some still even read the scriptures, although they tend to have more of a secular worldview. So let's not overreact to the statistics, but let's also realize there is a trend we need to be aware of and make sure we're attentive to. It's interesting that there's opportunities with this generation that a lot of people, I think, are naive to. I have a friend who's a pastor out in Montreal, and he was telling me about how just last week a guy that claimed to be an atheist came to his church, and he and he asked him, you know, why did you come to church? And he said, because this—and I thought it was so interesting. He said, because church is the only place I know of right now that I can go to experience community where it doesn't cost me money. 
Huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'd never thought about that. And then, but he was intrigued by church because it was a place of community. And at the end of the service, this guy is crying. He didn't have this come to faith moment, but he said, I got to rethink this whole Christianity thing because I'm experiencing not only human relationship here, but I'm beginning to realize that I might have a deeper need of relationship with regards to God. And so it'll be interesting to see where that goes. But Sean, with the challenges of this generation, don't you think that there's a lot of opportunity to reach this generation? I do. And I'll tell you one of the things that we write in the book, and I do in my presentations to pastors, parents, any adult, is I'll ask people to give words that describe this generation. And almost always, 80, 90% plus of the words are spoiled, entitled, lazy, disrespectful. In other words, people tend to see this generation through a negative lens. And then I step back and I say, listen to the words you just used. How we view this generation shapes how we relate to them. That's powerful. This is a generation that I think yearns for community and yearns for authenticity because everybody's trying to sell them something every moment in their lives through social media. So the point being, there are concerns about this generation, but like with every generation, there's also huge opportunities. And I think the opportunities are, in some ways, the opportunities that have always been there. Generation, they're seeking for relationships, in fact, in the Barna study on Gen Z, they actually said, I think it was 46 or 47% are open to evidence for a particular religion. Isn't that interesting? So in my experience of this generation, they're open to conversation. In fact, A&E Biography did a huge show called Undercover High where these students went into high schools and they were 21 to like 24 and they went as, as kind of a undercover high school students and then proclaim their observations to the world about what's really happening in high school. And the bottom line conclusion they said is here's a generation that feels so understood and they're just yearning for adults to have a conversation with them and build relationships with them. Now on the surface, it doesn't appear that way because their headphones are in, speak a different language, busy, distracted. But the reality is they're made in the image of God and they're yearning for adults to say, you're the beloved and I'll care for you. I'm going to step into your life and build relationship and help you discover what it really means to live a flourishing life. This generation is hungry for that. I love how this book, uh, you know, in the first section talks about Generation Z and just lays out, you know, who they are and that relational component. But I love how this book actually gives us practical steps in dealing with them as a group and as as uh, people. So in chapter five, I really like this one piece that you did there. It's called the two whys for every what. It's going to take us a little bit with this generation and a little bit of work on our part as well. But could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I got to give my co-author full credit for this idea. It's simple, yet it makes so much sense. And he applied this as a parent and as a youth pastor that every what we give about the Bible always give two reasons why. So, for example, I was speaking with my dad maybe six months ago at a conference weekend on sexuality and a biblical response to pornography. And this student came up to me with his mom and he said to me, he goes, you know, my whole life I've heard that sex outside of marriage and pornography is bad. But nobody told me why. This is the first time I understand why. 
Well, in that young person's life, that just went from an idea he's heard in the church to something that makes sense and is now a conviction for him. So, so many times in the past, we've just told this generation what to believe, but we don't tell them why. And I've thought one of my conversations, if we just tell young people, hey, don't have sex before marriage, but we don't explain God's design for sexuality, God's design for singleness, God's design for marriage, and why that is good for individuals and for societies, this generation is going to chuck their faith. So what we're trying to encourage anybody who interacts with this generation is not only pass on what we believe, what's been passed on to us, but help them see at least two whys for every single what that we give them. And that transforms the conviction of this generation. Hey, Sean, we have a, a number of uh, different pastors, youth pastors that listen to this show. What advice would you give them? Obviously, I, I would encourage them to read the book. But what kind of advice would you give them with regards to ministry and the work that they're doing in the church to reach this generation? You know what? I would mainly just want to encourage them because right now it feels like we live in somewhat precarious times. We're worried about kids leaving the faith. We're worried about an encroaching secular culture. And I would just say more than ever, we need pastors and youth pastors to spend their time and energy speaking into and reaching this generation. Now, youth pastors say, duh, that's what I do. Okay. But I'm telling you, in the churches that really make a difference from the pulpit with time and with money, the pastor makes the next generation a priority. They make it a priority. So any pastor who's listening, I know you've got a million hats you have to wear, but this generation has more pressures just one click away on their phone, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, etc., than any previous generation. They are hungry and eager to make a difference. Will you make this next generation a priority for the church? If so, I'm telling you, you will see this generation respond. Second, you know what else my encouragement is? I was speaking at a conference not long ago, and a youth pastor I was told was coming to the conference. He had left his faith and left his he didn't believe anymore. So I asked him if we could meet. And we met and listened to him. And I tried to answer his questions about he felt God wasn't doing miracles and God wasn't absent. At the end, he said, what advice do you have for me? I said, here's my question. Every time I see a young pastor or youth pastor leaving their faith, I always find bad theology. I don't find that they ever experience the power of grace in their life. So I looked at this youth pastor. I said, here's my question for you. Did you ever have an experience where you knew you were a sinner and broken and you needed God's grace in your life and experienced forgiveness? And Terry and Andy, it was like a deer in the headlights. What's happened is because of the first question you asked me about mental health, sometimes we're shifting the gospel to people to say you're lonely Jesus will make you feel not lonely. You're hurting. Jesus will fix your problems. And what the youth pastor said to me, he said, I was hurting. So I came to Jesus. So he fixed my problems. I didn't realize I was a sinner in need of forgiveness. So my encouragement to pastors, and youth pastors, anybody listening is just to make sure your message and your teaching is grace infused and filtered. 
because this is a broken, hurting generation. And that's ultimately the message that brings life transformation. Before we continue, a message from Andy. Hi, listeners. This is Andy Steiger. I just wanted to remind you that I have a new children's book out that I co-authored with Rachel McKenzie called What Am I Worth? You can pick it up at Amazon or ApologeticsCanada.com. As well, I have a new book coming out in September with Zondervan. The title is Reclaimed, How Jesus Humanizes in a Dehumanized World. As you know, we are living in a challenging time, but I believe with great opportunities for sharing the gospel. This book uniquely uses our humanity to discuss the gospel and what a life of flourishing in Christ looks like that I believe is desperately needed in our world. If you would like to learn more about this resource and help us get the word out, please consider becoming a part of our book launch team and help us get this resource into people's hands. Those that participate will get an early edition of the book and have the opportunity to learn and interact with me on its content. If you would like to participate, let us know by emailing info at apologeticscanada.com. And now, back to the podcast. In your book, you do make a distinction between teaching and training. Can you tease that out a little bit? Because I think uh, with youth, I think if we do give them a challenge, they're going to rise to it. I think in how we approach it and how how we're uh, delivering it. Yeah, one of the reasons I want to write this with Jay Warner Wallace, well, one, he's a different generation than I am. Uh, Second, he's a baby boomer. But also, he brought this unique perspective as a cold case detective from the police force. And he noticed when he shifted from the police force to being a youth pastor, that in the police force, they look at future officers and they train them. In other words, they know they're heading into battle. So everything they're learning, they know is going to play itself out in some fashion. So there's an urgency to teach them how do you handle a weapon? How do you defuse a situation? How do you carry an investigation? Because they're going to be in conflict soon. Yet often in the church and in the family, we just teach truths without putting young people into a situation to live them out. So one way we've done this is in March, I'm taking a group of high school students to Berkeley and we're gonna bring in atheists and skeptics and agnostics and have them speak to our students. So we're not just teaching our students theology and apologetics. We're training them because on the calendar, they have a challenge coming up where they're going to have to put this into practice. So the point being, we have to ask ourselves, not only do we just teach truth, that's important, but how do we get kids out of the nest, out of their comfort zone, out of the church building, and practicing these kind of spiritual disciplines, interaction with non-believers, that's when the faith really takes root. So we're telling people, stop just teaching. We need to train a generation to be ready to live out their faith in the future. I think this is a good transition here. So we talked about you speaking to pastors. And now as we're transitioning into this training idea, I think this would be a good opportunity to speak to parents. How does a parent do this? And I'd be curious, even Sean, you know, I have, I have a 10-year-old and I have a 12-year-old. And there's things that my wife and I do as we're seeking to train them. But but what about yourself? How do you address this from a parental perspective? So for this one, let me give you two practical ways I've tried to do this. And by the way, this book is not like a what, it's a how. We're trying to give a lot of practical tools. My son came to me last year when he was 14, and he wanted to see this movie, Bohemian Rhapsody, which was about the rock band Queen. 
PG-13, had a little bit of sexual content, wasn't super comfortable with, but I read it and thought, you know what? I don't mind taking my son to this. I said to him, I said, I'll take you, I'll pay, I'll pay for popcorn and a friend whose parent allows. If when we're done, we just sit down and we talk about it. I'm not going to lecture you, but I want to know what you think. I want to know what you thought about the ideas in it. I want to know how you think we should think about this movie Christianly. He goes, sure. So we go to the movie, we come back, we sit down for half an hour, and we just had a conversation about how to think Christianly about film. A second example, last summer, my daughter, who's 12, wanted these Birkenstock shoes, and they're like $100. <laughs> they're not cheap. So I said to her, I said, okay, here's the deal. If you watch 50 PragerU videos, and these are videos that are four to five minutes, high quality, and they're on cultural, uh, sometimes political, sometimes family, uh, sometimes religious themes. If you watch, you might want to watch, write a paragraph of each one you watch, and then tell me or your mom or your grandparents about it. I'll buy you those shoes. So my daughter watched 50 of these videos over the summer and is telling me about like, hey, did you know this about Planned Parenthood? Hey, did you know this about, you know, the Civil War, like these things she's learning? Well, those are two examples. And our whole goal in the book is not to give people a new program to do, but to say, let's shift our thinking and look for opportunities that are there if we just maximize them. So that's what we want to help parents do. How do they better maximize ways to build relationships with their kids and look for natural opportunities to engage them spiritually and pass on the faith? Just that mindset change, when parents begin to think that way, they will find there's a ton of opportunities that are available for them if they just seize them. Well, we really appreciate this book, and there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of uh, thought gone on to, into this book. Uh, we highly recommend you going out and getting this book and uh, taking a read uh, through it. As well, in the, in the back, there's a number of other different resources that are listed here. Sean, I should just ask here, you guys have some interesting conferences that are available for students, and uh, as well with these different missions trips that you do. Can you just briefly talk about that? Yep. Happy to do it. Three things that might help parents with specific resources. Number one, every young person between 16 to 25 needs to go to Summit Ministries. It's a 12-day worldview kind of conference experience that's fun. But some of the best worldview thinkers, many of whom I know you have on the show, come in and speak to students how to deal with some of the toughest cultural political, theological, apologetic issues today in relationship. So summit.org is a resource. Any parent listening with a kid or grandkids, 16 to 25, send your kids. Second, Stand a Reason runs these conferences uh, and they're weekend conferences. So Friday, Saturday around the country, Minnesota, Dallas, Southern California, go to str.org and look for a weekend conference and think about taking your son or daughter specifically to their conferences. Uh, that's a ministry of stand to reason. Third is Brett Kunkel, a friend of mine, I know he's a friend of both of yours, has a ministry called Maven. And he actually works with churches, would work with homeschool groups, work with Christian schools, and take them on these kind of apologetic experience mission trips. So if you're hearing this going, ooh, I want to get my students on a college campus, I want to get them engaging others, go to Brett Kunkel's website, maventruth.com, I believe it is, and see if you can partner with him and have him come train your students. 
So where can people uh, come check you out? What, uh, what sites can they go to for you? Well, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, but probably the easiest place is just my website, seanmcdowell.org. seanmcdowell.org. I've got books, I've got articles, i got a blog, a bunch of free stuff and some resources if people want to follow up and uh, find that helpful as well. And a podcast as well. Is that a weekly thing? That's right. And the podcast is called Think Biblically. It's sponsored out of Biola, a lot like this one, engaging the big issues of today once a week, about 25, 30 minutes. Perfect. Hey, thanks again, Sean, for coming on the show. Been a longtime friend. We sure appreciate you. Look forward to uh, when we see you next. Honored to be on and then love your ministry. Be encouraged and keep it up. Thank you for joining us, listeners. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more things to think about. <laughs>